Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome, everybody, to episode 78 of Music Talk Podcast. I'm Nick Mercer, and my co-host, Aaron Goldfoyle, is now muted, but she is here. And we're going to talk about intimate partner violence and traumatic brain injury with a lot of people. So, Dr. Angela Colantonio and Lynn Hogg, uh, which who is where, oh, there she is, and I see she's just here at almost, um, at, from the ABI Research Lab at University of Toronto, and from UBC, University of British Columbia's, and the Colonial, Colonial, Colonial Women's Shelter. Is that correct? The, the Joint Project of the Colonial Women's Shelter and the University of British Columbia Okanagan. Karen Mason and Dr. Paul Van Donkeler. And from her abode in... Uh, abode? Abode is not a word. Abode. <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in Utah is Lauren, who is, Lauren Zachs, who is going to eventually join us, who is joining us now, but I haven't talked to Lauren in ages, it feels like, so uh, welcome everybody to, uh, to this podcast, and to help me, who is being instrumental, really, really helped guide this thing going, is Sofia Gutierrez, who is going, who works for, works at the ABI Research Lab at the University of Toronto with Dr. Cole Antonio and Lynn Hagg, and, um, I think we're going to start that game correctly that time. Then hug. Um, anyway, she's going to talk about, she'll ask some questions, but also now she'll just introduce the topic of intimate partner violence, IPV, and what that means. And then she will introduce her or ask the panel to introduce themselves. So, Sophia, what do you mean by intimate partner violence? So, IPV is the short form for intimate partner violence, as most of us all know, and it's stand well. It's generally defined by any behavior or acts that cause physical or psychological and sexual harm to one partner committed by another partner in an intimate partner relationship. So, such as a marriage or in a dating situation. Some of these acts can include hits, punches, strangulation rape and verbal threats and it's a big issue in Canada and around the world 
Okay, so uh, Sophia, would you like to ask these the first introductory question to ask these people to? Yeah, sure. So the general public isn't really knowledgeable about the connection between IPV and TBI. If you were to walk down the street of, say, a big city in Toronto, I'm sure not many people would honestly know what IPV stood for. So if anyone could give just a brief introduction on the research that you're doing and how it's been going for you, that would be great place to start. And I think we guess we'll pick someone to start. So let's go alphabetical. Let's go, let's go to BC first. So Dr. Van Dongler and Karen Mason, can you just give a better description of the SOAR project and, uh, and what work you're doing in UBC Okanagan and, and the SOAR project. Sure. So um, thanks, first of all, for having us uh, today. It's well, uh, thank great, you so much for joining uh, You know, continue to raise awareness on this important topic. Uh, so the SOAR project, which stands for Supporting Survivors of Abuse and Brain Injury Through Research, uh, started about four or five years ago now, and uh, it's got a, a few different components. Um, one of the key things that we're trying to do from a research perspective is better understand, um, you know, the characteristics of brain injury in women who've experienced intimate partner violence. And so my own background has been looking at brain injury in, in kind of lab-based assessments, uh, typically in the context of sport-related concussion. And so we've got a bunch of different tools that we use to try to better understand what some of the dysfunction is that results from those brain injuries. And so we're really just taking a bunch of those assessments and applying it to um, IPV survivors. And so we measure them in a variety of different ways, looking at different aspects of brain function that allow us to gain some insight into some of the challenges that they may face. Basically trying to be able to say, yes, brain injury, here's evidence that brain injury is part of this experience. And maybe Karen can tell a little bit about some of the other aspects of the project. Thank you. And yeah, let me reiterate, thanks so much for having us. It's so great to have these conversations. Um, so the SOAR project has really three key phases. And the first one we call explore, which is the part that Paul was just talking about. The second phase is called educate. And in that phase, we're really looking at creating education and resources and awareness for those who work on the front lines with women who've experienced violence, but also among the general public and um, people in pretty much any sector, because we know that intimate partner violence happens to about 30% or more of women in their lifetime. And we know the incidence of brain injury are high. So we need to get this information out to pretty much everybody if we're going to have uh, an impact and make women's lives better. As part of the educate phase, we worked with uh, community partners and women's shelters to develop an online training course called the Concussion Awareness Training Tool for Women's Support Workers. And it's a 30 to 40 minute online course really in the basics of brain injury and intimate partner violence and how to support women who've experienced that, as well as uh, tips on resources and tools. And then the last phase of our project is called Empower, and that's about working with the healthcare system, community support agencies, and other partners to develop and test supports for women who've experienced brain injury and intimate partner violence. We know generally that healthcare and other resources for concussion generally exist, 
but there's nothing really specific and focused on women who've experienced intimate partner violence. And we know there are so many complex and nuanced factors in intimate partner violence and in brain injury that we're really trying to work at bringing all the resources together and trying to ensure that those resources are available and accessible to women, but that they're also trauma-informed brain injury informed, intimate partner violence informed. So that kind of sums up the three aspects of SOAR in which all these different bits and pieces we're doing fit. Yeah, well, so uh, well, I guess uh, I'll take off from Sophia here, but I don't mean to, but uh, I guess now I'll just move to, to a University of Toronto, so Dr. Cole Antonio, and I will call you Lynn in fear of mispronouncing your name again. So <laughs> I'm sure I have already. But uh, so what is the ABI Research Lab and uh, and what? So I guess actually Dr. Colantonio, you're the uh, the head of that lab, aren't you? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, so what what, I, is, what is that lab? And, and actually, Lynn, uh, do, you, do you work at that lab yourself or? Yes, you're a part of the lab, aren't you? Yes, yeah, she is a, a seminal member of our lab. Okay. Okay, so so, I can tell you a little bit. Of, what I thought I would do is just tell us tell you a little bit about what we do in our lab. Yep. yep. And then, um, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Lynn to talk about more specifically some of our IPV projects. So, um, so I'm a professor in the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto, which is an interdisciplinary doctoral stream program and a professor of occupational science and occupational therapy, and I lead the Acquired Brain Injury Research Lab. And it's at University of Toronto and the Kite uh, Research Institute at the University Health Network. And my pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm currently also a Canada Research Chair, or hold a Canada Research Chair in the area of traumatic brain injury in underserved populations. And we've been uh, researching uh, traumatic brain injury over many years with this focus. So we've examined traumatic brain injury in underserved populations, such as those who are homeless, vulnerably housed, persons involved in the criminal legal system, um, persons who obtain their brain injury through violence with a focus on intimate partner violence, high-risk workers, older adults, and indigenous populations. And I have to say a lot of these populations are overlapping. So. Mm. Um, you know, it does, we found it does make sense to spring these groups together. And uh, also our work um, uh, has addressed unidentified brain injury in these populations. And um, with the goal often that to try to bring treatment approaches to them that have, they've historically not been benefited and not received benefit from like neurorehabilitation approaches. Um, so we've done some of the initial studies in Canada among these populations, um, identifying high rates of brain injury, and also in a lot of these populations, assault is a major mechanism of injury. We also, our research in, uh, aims to integrate sex and gender considerations throughout the research. So we've done some studies on specifically on a brain, how a brain injury affects a woman's body which has been a neglected area of research. And um, we also work in collaboration with stakeholders and end users in our work and, and utilize participatory approaches. And uh, much of our research is directly led by our outstanding trainees um, that have lived, including those with uh, lived experience of brain injury and 
We're fortunate to have Lynn in our lab, who's uh, doing a doctorate in social work at Wilfrid Laurier, and has taken lead on this research um, nationally and internationally. Um, and so part of that has involved uh, conducting a survey, including uh, addressing the level of knowledge about brain injury and frontline workers, and identifying a really significant knowledge gap among these providers. And that has led to creating a toolkit to address this knowledge gap. And, uh, um, and that's being accessed now, and that's not for in Canada, but also all over the world. So I'm gonna turn it over to Lynn. Thank you, Angela. And uh, thank you, Nick, for the invitation to join today and, oh. and be part of this conversation. As, as all of us have said, this is, you know, this is a, a really important conversation, so I'm really glad to see it happening here. Um, the toolkit that Angela mentioned is, is available online. It's at www.abitoolkit.ca. Um, and it's intended to be an educational resource for uh, frontline workers and uh, women survivors, just to give folks um, access to the basic uh, information about traumatic brain injury, why it's relevant for this particular group of survivors, and, and how things might be a little bit different. One of the things that, that we've found um, is that the, um, that the brain injury has a, a, can have a significant impact on folks trying to uh, plan for and, and safely leave abusive relationships, as well as just sort of day-to-day -day tasks post-relationship, post um, parenting, employment, um, finding safe, safe housing, all those kinds of things. So the brain injury can often make that more complicated. It can interfere with relationships with um, support service providers. And a lot of that can be misunderstood because um, to date, brain injury has really been overlooked in this group. So there've been a lot of things that we knew was happening for these women, but um, a lot of times I think we, we missed the diagnosis, we missed the piece about the brain injury. And so that's been a bit of a challenge in terms of service delivery and, and, and the ability for folks to take services up, what we refer to as uptake or access. So um, I think it's a great, it's, it's great to see things moving. Um, our line of research started uh, about five, six years ago as well. And, and so it's really good to see that there are some Canadian teams moving this, this agenda forward. We've had the opportunity to, um, as Angela says, we work very closely with, um, with community partners in a participatory model. So we're, we're really working with survivors and frontline service providers on the ground. And part of that is, is a key commitment to making sure that the work is user-driven, but also that, that the work that we produce can get out into the community as quickly as possible and, and be put to good use yeah. um, on, on the street, sort of, so to speak. So that's something that's really important for us um, to, to focus on. And I think it's something that, that uh, it, it sort of helps us, it keeps us going on the research line. You know, if it doesn't yeah. just end up on a shelf, certainly it, it makes me feel better as a social worker to know that, that that's happening. Great, great. So as you will, in the last one, I guess, is Lauren to briefly introduce herself and take herself off mute and uh, tell us about how she's doing. No, she, she doesn't. She doesn't research it per, as directly as you per se, but she, she you know, I'll let her just, just explain, explain more who she is and what she does. So, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me back. Sorry about my hiatus. COVID <laughs> made everything more challenging uh, this year. 
So um, I'm appreciative of being on with all of you guys and all of your research. I treat concussions and mild to moderate traumatic brain injuries. So therefore, I end up with patients who are victims of intimate partner, intimate partner violence. Um, in Utah, we actually have a very big issue um, with this. We have a strong patriarchal society, which makes it very hard for women to leave. Um, we have a much higher incidence rate. So um, just to give you a sort of an idea, it's one in um, one in five will experience it in their one in four, excuse me, will experience intimate partner violence in the U.S. in their lifetime. But it's one in five per year in Utah. So um, it's a much higher rate. Uh, we also have 42 to 53% of all homicides in the state of Utah are related to intimate partner violence. So um, it, it's an area that definitely needs a lot more awareness, a lot more service lines available. We have some community programs, but there's certainly not enough. The, the ability to leave your home and have a place to land on your feet seems to be the largest burden for patients to be able to access care. And then the laws here tend to protect the perpetrator more than the victim um, because women end up going back. And so our lawmakers tend to feel like, well, if the women are just going to keep going back, what's the point in offering them more protection, um, which is a vicious cycle, right? Because if women had more protection, they wouldn't go back. And, and then, of course, it happens to men and at staggering rates to LGBTQ um, members. But for the sake of ease, I'll, I'll just speak about the statistics for women. Um, I, I did some extra coursework. Unfortunately, with COVID, we've seen more in this sexual assault and intimate partner violence realm in the last year. So we did some extra learning to try to understand better um, how to address these people a little bit more. And, and one of the statistics that I thought was fascinating and terrifying was that there's 23 million women in the United States living with a head trauma related to intimate partner violence. Um, and it's nine times more prevalent for there to be a concussion or traumatic brain injury uh, in intimate partner violence than football. So a lot of our money and our time, at least in the United States, is spent on these sports-related injuries. But the reality is these women and men are walking around with these injuries where they won't have appropriate access to care. Um, and, and they do tend to get better more slowly, but there's a large psychological component and there's a lot of extra factors that make their care more challenging. So this is definitely an area I'm really interested in. And I think it needs so much more awareness, um, but I'm certainly not nearly as qualified as you all are, are to talk about it. So thank you for having me. That's a great, great. Thanks. And uh, I guess, uh, Sophia, would you like to ask the first question or would you like me to? Or I shall ask the first general question about research. So again, start with, I'll start with my top left corner, which is Dr. Colantonio. How would you, how do you define traumatic brain injury for your study, your research? Well, in general, we do it in a number of ways, um, and it depends on the question, too. Um, we can, you know, we, we do a lot of self-report um, measures. We have different screening tools that we can use for that. Um, there are a range out there. Some are quick screen for a head injury. Others are more detailed. Um, it's interesting when you use different measures, you see the difference in rates when you use um, a, just a one or two questions versus one that kind of jogs everyone's memory, like um, in terms of different events, like whether they had a car crash and did they, you know, have symptoms of brain injury, did they have a fall, did they have um, a blow to the head, you know, so it's, um, 
it's so different measures might give you different rates. And um, then we have studies where we've look, looked at clinical records as well. Um, our, our lab also uses uh, large administrative data sets from our publicly funded healthcare system. So we've looked at um, brain injury um, by assault in the entire population of um, Ontario and also strangulation um, over time as well and, and by sex and males and females. So um, depending on the research question, we've got students who've looked at neuroimaging, looked at sex differences in the brain uh, neuro using neuroimaging methods as well. So it really depends on the question and the resources. And um, so, so anyway. It's a tough one to answer, yeah. And Lynn, I assume you have this, you have defined the same way as you're in the same lab? Um, I yeah, a lot of the work that I do tends to assume traumatic brain injury rather than okay. look to identify it necessarily. Okay. Yeah, um, it's it, there are a lot of reasons for that um, that have to do with sort of the the group that we're working with and the capacity to to screen and test. Um, and so often I I will look for history of exposure, and and ask a few questions about sort of are they experiencing some of the more common symptoms that we might expect to see in someone with a traumatic brain injury. And then once we hit that benchmark, I sort of assume likelihood of exposure to TBI and, and go from there. Um, but I think all of us use the same definition to some degree, which is, is an altered state of consciousness from an external force to the head. So um, some sort of hits to the head, face or neck, including choking or strangulation, which causes a brain injury of a different sort, not traumatic brain injury, but still can cause brain injury, as well as um, external, you know, penetrating objects, penetrating injury would also qualify. But I think all of us probably use that definition or something very similar to that. Okay, well, would, uh, Karen Mason, Paul Van Donk, would you, would, you, uh, would you agree with what Liam was saying? Because uh, that's, that's, that's the case, then I'll let Sophia take over. No, I absolutely agree with that. It's it's uh, really about um, self-reporting um, previous episodes and then linking that to current symptoms or signs um, and, and attempting to assess uh, the extent to which that affects brain function. Okay. Okay. Well, then, Sophia, would you like, does your, Sophia sure. is yeah. is in the, in your research, in the research group at U of T, so she knows the lingo and why exactly it's right there, so. She may be the best one to lead this conversation. Yep. So I'm doing my undergrad in kinesiology, and I also volunteer with Lynn. So I'm also doing a, my own research project in IPV-related TBI. So um, just for listeners' sake, why is the prevalence of IPV-related TBI so high in, Can in Canada and the United States? Can, can we just like comment on why we think it's so high? And what have the general trends been in the past decade and before that? So I guess uh, maybe we could start with Angela. Well, it's unfortunate that it's so high. Um, I think, uh, I, I can't say really as why, but I think that um, maybe there are cultural factors, lack of awareness um, issue. Like we know gender is a determinant of health. Um, well, the WHO considers gender a determinant of health due to the unequal opportunities girls and women have globally, and that includes more gender-based violence. Um, so there's 
got to be major education shift and more resources in terms of addressing the issue. Um, I know, like, for instance, the World Health Organization has uh, gender transformative um, interventions to address intimate partner violence, you know, changing people's attitudes around um, this phenomena. Um, like, because in some countries, intimate partner violence isn't even a crime. So there's a, the other thing, too, is what's interesting in the literature is that perpetrators um, have been shown to have a higher history. Uh, there's a higher percentage of brain injury among perpetrators. Like on average, a, a systematic review that I saw <clears throat> said it's around 53%. So maybe it's a, you know, it's a more relationship problem. It's not just beyond, it's beyond the women. It may be issues around the perpetrator in terms of unrecognized brain injury or unaddressed brain injury in terms of the perpetrator. So this may be a scope for prevention as well. Um, so those are, those are some points that I like to bring up. Yep, completely. And, um, uh, sorry, sure, sorry. You saw Lauren raise her hand there? The little used little virtual hand raise that's available. So, so uh, before, sorry, I didn't know if you were going to address that or not. I just wanted to make sure that Lauren got a chance to to ask her question or say her piece or whatever. So. Um, I, I was just wondering if anybody could speak to this sort of cycle of violence. So they talk a lot about children who are um, children who witness violence in their home, whether or not they are the victims of the violence, um, are more likely to have anxiety, be in either violent relationships as the victim or be a perpetrator of violence, continuing that cycle. So does anybody have anything that they could say to expand on that a little bit, especially remembering that there could be a listener who is living in a home that isn't a great environment and maybe knowing information about their children's risk in the future could be enough to motivate them um, to be able to make a, a tough decision and uproot their lives and knowing how that could affect their future generations. Certainly. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Lynn. I have to say, Lauren, I think it's an excellent question. Um, and it's one that, that we get asked a lot when we do um, when we do educational sessions with folks. and. Um, and as a researcher and someone who's who's read you know quite a bit on the subject, I agree with you. This is that's the first one of the first things that comes to my mind too is 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 there a relationship? You know, we've talked a lot about the cycle of violence in in domestic violence research and and uh, practice over the years, and it does. I have the same question that you do. I think one of the challenges that we have is is that we don't know in this context. We haven't had. I I, I can't really. I can't really sort of stress how new this area of research is. It's really in its infancy. Um, we have very, very few um, research studies done over the years. We're moving forward rapidly at this point. The, the growth rate in the last five or six years in this area is, is wonderful to see. We are collecting more information, but this is something that we haven't looked at specifically yet. That said, um, I think there's quite a bit of literature that suggests outcome for children who are who are injured that suggests there are possibilities of what might happen without proper supports and they do there are, there are pathways that you can see between childhood injury that that for whatever reason remains un, undiagnosed or unsupported that there are negative outcomes that that happen down the road and and a lot of those could link back to these kinds of situations um, I think 
having Karen, you know, I, I cut Karen off, but I'm, I'm going to hand directly to her because she's got, she's got a practice experience level that the rest of us don't have. And she brings that to the table as well. So I, I personally, I want to hear what, what you have to say on that too, Karen. Thank you. Um, I, we know that, you know, children who witness abuse, as you suggested, are twice as likely to grow up and either become abusers, perpetrators themselves or victims. We know the research shows that. And certainly the women I worked with in my time at Kelowna Women's Shelter, many of them would report that it wasn't until they truly realized the harm and potential harm to their children that it was enough of a, of a spark for them to get out. That in the end, it didn't even it didn't even come down to them and their own safety. It was this realization light bulb moment that in fact their children were at risk and what was this going to do to them down the road that really uh, spurred them to make that final choice to leave for good. So I think it's an excellent point when we talk about what the problem is and how can we create awareness, the more information we can put in the hands of women in their toolkit that will make them have that last kernel of knowledge that they need to make that decision to leave is really important. And I think that information and the information of the incredibly high risk and lethality of brain injury, those are really important pieces to get to help them make that choice when they get there for sure. I just I just want to say um, maybe it's a little bit related is when uh, we did a study on uh, men and women who were incarcerated in Ontario and we looked at their early life experiences by sex and we did find um, the highest rates of early negative early life experiences among the persons with brain injury in that in that setting and the highest um, percentages of early life ex negative early life experiences such as uh, physical and sexual abuse were among women who were incarcerated and um, more than women who didn't have a brain injury and more than men that had a brain injury or um, and didn't have a brain injury. So, um, so I think um, for children who've been abused, this is a really important area to intervene and, and um, to try to mitigate some of the negative consequences that can occur. I think okay. that's really that's a point just to underline that there's there are lots of things that we can do. You know, this brain injury is is not a one way it's not a one way ticket. There there are lots of points at which we can support, we can adopt, we can accommodate and and outcomes can be changed. These pathways can they can shift and and I think the really important thing here in terms of the messages that that you know we we want to get out there are, yes, it's important, the situation is happening, yes, it's critical, um, but there is hope, and, and we can do something about that if we can if we can move along that path a little further. Yeah, and I just, another point I wanted to make too was, like I'm working in the rehabilitation field, so persons with disabilities, and persons with disabilities, including persons with brain injury, are at particular risk of, of victimization and abuse. Um, so that, you know, in fact, some of the studies on IPV, um, their qualitative study that I was reading, like every woman that was interviewed had a history of a brain injury, um, independent of whether it was from IPV or not. Um, so some of the, um, like there's been, um, a report from Statistics Canada on spousal abuse and the highest percentage of 
uh, spousal abuse was among women with cognitive disability. Um, and similarly, in IPV, um, there's studies that show that up to 70% of women and 30 and 37% of men uh, over the past year had uh, experienced intimate partner violence. So this, so persons with disabilities, persons with cognitive disabilities, um, I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of prevention, um, in terms of trying to prevent being put, what persons being put in that situation or supporting them so they can avoid some of those negative relationships or circumstances. Just okay. so, uh, Sophia, I don't want to. I'm taking over your job, your job now. But Aaron, Lauren has raised her hand again, and uh, <laughs> I don't. But, uh, I mean, no but I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you. So, Lauren, stop plugging on the stuff. Sophia's trying to. <laughs> I feel like I'm the one taking over Sophia's job. So sorry. <laughs> no. okay. I'll I'll step back. <laughs> I had a different question, but then I wanted to pivot, actually. So I thought it was a great point to talk about um, how there is hope for these people. And that if you get out of your situation and you get the right treatment, you can get better, right? It's it's the scary part that there's people walking around the planet who haven't had access to the right treatment. But but always, and, and know that from all of our previous podcasts, too, and you can go back and look at different treatment options for concussion and mild to moderate traumatic brain injury. But um, with neuroplasticity, we can always make changes. It doesn't matter if your injury was 10 years ago. If you're still struggling today, there are targeted therapies that can be done. Um, but my question to you all was, we notice a lot of what they're calling here in the U.S. flooding during our treatment sessions, whether the current head injury that I'm treating is from intimate partner violence, or maybe the patient has a history of abuse as a child, sexual violence, intimate partner violence, and they will have irregardless of whether they had gone through therapy before to sort of file away those memories, patients will get this flooding back um, with related to their PTSD from their current injury. Talk a little bit about sort of the science behind why some of those memories come up and the importance of integrating mental health counseling in with your physical therapy and your occupational therapy. So uh, why don't I take a first stab at this? Uh, it, you raise a really good point, and that is that this is a really complex um, set of experiences. Uh, um, and, and, you know, it's a, it's a lot different than the typical person who gets, a, you know, a, a, say a, a brain injury from a car accident or a sport-related concussion, where my, that might be the only thing that is outside of the typical experience. Um, and so from a scientific perspective, it's really important in terms of the rigorous assessment of, of a brain injury in this context to try and disentangle how much of what we're seeing is due to the brain injury itself, the head impacts or the strangulation versus the um, uh, psychopathological consequences or comorbidities that might go along with that. So the PTSD and the depression, the anxiety or a history of substance use, for example, to try and self-medicate around the challenges of, of living through these experiences. So that's just from an assessment, you know, potential diagnosis perspective is how much of the behavior that we're seeing is due to the brain injury versus the PTSD versus the depression. Then from a intervention or a, a support perspective, they all of those factors need to be taken into account in a very, you know, um, individualized uh, approach and multifaceted approach. Um, so it's complex, um, and it's important to take embrace that complexity, both mm -hmm. from a, a assessment perspective as well as an intervention perspective. And giving giving 
service providers, training in, in how to be trauma-informed, and training in the as I think I mentioned before, the nuance and complexity of intimate partner violence. There are so many myths that live about intimate partner violence. And if I send a woman who's experienced brain injury and intimate partner violence to a brain injury clinician in my community and said brain injury clinician is not educated in intimate partner violence and doesn't have trauma-informed training, it's all going to go sideways pretty quickly and we have a high risk of re-triggering this woman and causing more trauma than necessary. So certainly in the work that we're doing, we're working really hard to ensure those counseling pieces are really integrated and it's one reason our research coordinator is in fact a half-time employee with our project and a half-time employee at our local women's shelter. So she really can guide that and work with clients and if while we're doing the work she's re-triggered, we can stop and give her the support she needs in that moment because it's absolutely critical and you're not going to help her if she ends up going down that rabbit hole of her past experiences. Completely. Yeah. One of the things that we're working on right now is looking at how we can facilitate that. Um, how, how can we deal with that complexity that, that Paul is talking about and, and, and that Karen's alluding to as well in these dual roles. And one of the things that I think is really important in the next steps is, is that we look at how do we, how do we build capacity by, by building bridges between the intimate partner violence world and the traumatic brain injury world. So, you know, a lot of the work that, that our team has focused on in the last five or six years has been to raise awareness within the IPV context to bring this, this uh, intersection to light and, and explore what that means for folks, but I think it's equally important that that we shift and and we look to the ABI community where we have a we have decades of experience at supporting folks with traumatic brain injury that can be really really effective within this this group. Once we've we've gone through those those processes, the trauma the trauma perspective, the you know bringing bringing knowledge and awareness to the to the ABI support community that that this group exists. And that they are different because they really are. This is a different experience. This is much more complex in many ways, as as Paul mentioned, and and it does require a more nuanced approach. But I think until we until we're able to build those relationships between these two previously siloed groups, we're really going to, as call as Karen says, we're we're running the risk of of increasing um, the damage and and re-traumatizing and and re-triggering, and and that's really that's so counterproductive on so many levels that, that I think it's, you know, I, I, that's why I say originally we all said, you know, it's great to have this conversation and, and this is exactly why, because we all need to sort these pieces out and move forward in a, in a combined collective approach, I think. And also on top of all of the layers, you know, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in the U S there's often a legal component to their care. Right. So now let's say I've been treating a patient for four months and finally, they're going to start having some of their pretrial. So now this patient's triggered all over again, and their concussion symptoms increase. And then you have to differentiate, is that the stress? Because they have these cracks in their foundation, and so the stress makes their brain function less. Is it because they're re-triggered? Often, patients have to decide, well, do I want to move forward with this legal case, or do I want to just move on with my life? And, and the guilt that goes with whether or not they want the perpetrator to be held responsible. And so it's just so important as a healthcare provider to just respect all of these layers that are involved with these patients and, and not labeling them psych, 
but treating them as a whole person and remembering all of these extra pieces that are going into their care that the average patient just is not experiencing. I, I agree. And, sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll take one sentence and then I'll hand it right over to you. Um, I agree entirely, Lauren. And I think I just want to, I want to raise a shout out to all the healthcare workers, all the support workers, the front line, the, the first responders, it, you know, historically, yes, we have not been supporting this population adequately, but it's not because we didn't care. It's because we didn't know. Honestly, this is, this is really one of the most under, understudied and, and sort of overlooked intersections in healthcare that, that I can think of considering this, the magnitude of, of the situation and the severity of the situation, we really were walking around in the absolute pitch black up until five, six, ten years ago. So, um, and I think the the speed and the willingness to change that in the last five or six years really is phenomenal. So just to make sure that that we're not bashing the healthcare profession or anything a little too hard on this, they're they're really doing their best and and it's up to us to get as much of this information out as quickly and as effectively as we can to support them to do the job that they're already trying to do. Sorry, Karen, over to you. Well, I, I, well, go ahead. I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, the other, the other piece that we haven't really touched on is not only, ha not only have um, researchers and healthcare professionals not known this was an issue to the extent that it is, but women themselves don't know. And that's part of our job to get the word out is all these women who may be walking around with brain injury from intimate partner violence and haven't even sought any kind of care, let alone the fact that that care may not be there effectively yet. But the one point I wanted to go back to when you were speaking about how as a client gets closer to perhaps um, moving through the justice system and her perpetrator being charged with something, in the end, we have to always keep top of mind to support women having their personal agency again, because women have come from these situations where they've had no control, no personal agency. And I think while we have all this information and all this advice and all these tips and tools, it must be presented to them in such a way that they get to choose and they get to regain that agency, which is so critical to their well-being. I just yeah. wanted to add some a systems approach too. Um, like the way we offer systems can be very fragmented. Uh, comes up all over again. Like we had a project on integrating traumatic brain injury, mental health, and addictions because. Often, um, a mental health co condition is an exclusionary criteria to get into a brain injury rehab program, and vice versa. So, um, so this is one of the greatest gaps um, for people with with um, you know mental health comorbidities. So we're trying we were trying to do a lot more cross training in that and to address some of the uh, system fragmentation, um, and 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 what. We've also, you know, identified as in general, you know, system navigation, navigating the healthcare system is a big issue. Um, so help with that is is also, so it's not just the individual treatment, but the whole system in, in terms of the way it's offered and what support we can provide, including peer support. So. <laughs> Completely. Thank you for the amazing discussion, guys. I had a feeling it would go on like this. Um, so I just wanted to take a step back from maybe the healthcare and educational side of things and really break it down for listeners. So 
At this point in, re in the research, what are some screening tools currently available or used for IPV-related TBI? And are we at a place where we're moving towards having a set or standardized assessment tool for it? Because when you search sport concussion assessment tool in Google, immediately you're presented with the SCAT 5 and the previous versions. Um, so how is, that, how is that with IPV-related TBI? Can anyone comment on it? Um, I'll start us off since I've, um, we did a paper on this a few years ago, and then I know um, Paul and Karen will, will be all over it because I know they're working on that right now. So I'll give us the history, and then we can move forward to where we're at now a little bit. Um, historically, we don't have a tool uh, that is specific to um, the IPV context. So we have lots of different TBI screening tools. Each of them does something a little bit differently. Lots of them have a little piece to offer. Uh, when we looked at the at what we had um, in 2016, I was working with colleagues, and when we looked at what we had available to us in the TBI screening sort of selection, we wanted to find whether or not any of them were particularly well suited to an IPV context, and could they be recommended for such a context. And um, unfortunately, all of them had some sort of drawback, one or one type or another. But in the end, we what we did was we sort of uh, looked at what needed to happen. And we decided that uh, the tool needed to be simple, it needed to be easy to apply, it needed to be able to be used by people who weren't professional brain injury types, um, so could be easily used by somebody in an IPV context who didn't necessarily have any training in brain injury specifically. And it needed to be trauma sensitive. That was a, as a key piece. That was a lot of the sort of um, complaints that we had around what existed was that they weren't trauma sensitive. Um, and these days, I would argue also that, that it needs to look at lifetime exposure. So it needs to consider, particularly because of what Angela mentioned earlier, the risk of exposure to, to violent relationship is increased for folks dealing with with disability in general, but specifically with traumatic brain injury survivors. So I think um, also, you know, one of the things that we do know is that layers of exposure to traumatic brain injury build up and become more and more problematic or can be more and more problematic over time. So if we don't, if we're only ever asking women questions about what brought them in the door this time into, into your context, I think that's a problem. And so uh, that's somewhere that I would say we need to move further towards. And and as I said, I know that this is something that Paul and Karen are working on. So I'll knock it over to to them to bring us up to speed. Well, I think, you know, the question of screening is such an important one. And it has a lot of interesting um, dilemmas around it. Ever since we started doing this work, and I know we've spoken to Angela and Lynn about this and others, we get the question of the ethics of screening women for brain injury and the concern of how a positive screen might be weaponized against a woman if she's going through the court system or she's going through a custody battle. So that's a really important consideration. So we can't just pick a tool, even if it seems like a really good one on its face and just randomly start using it. There's a lot of intention and deep thought and planning, I think, and protocols that have to be in place with it. Um, that said, we also did a bit of a review of what tools were out there. And we uh, went to our community partner, the Kelowna Women's Shelter and put some of the top ones in front of their staff. They chose as a favorite, if we were going to use one, as the an adapted version of the HELPS brain injury screening tool, which is relatively brief 
It does um, do a little bit of historical context. The existing HELPS tool does not reference strangulation, which is problematic. So we have uh, adapted it somewhat, added a strangulation piece, and are offering it as a resource to those who want to screen because it is pretty quick, pretty basic, easy to do. It can be done as a formal screening with a scoring thing or just in a conversation with a woman to have the conversation about brain injury and discuss the resources that might be available. But like any of them, I think it wasn't designed specifically for intimate partner violence and it has a number of weak areas. There's also a tool that a team uh, at the Ohio Domestic Violence Network is developing that they call the CHATS tool that looks into brain injury from a blow to the head or other force and strangulation, but also incorporates discussion about mental health and suicidal ideation. So they're kind of covering all those bases and they're working on finalizing that tool right now. And then there's one that we use in the explore phase at the SOAR project that was developed by Dr. Eve Valera um, at Harvard Medical School and Paul can talk about that. Sure, it's called the Brain Injury Severity Assessment um, Questionnaire. It's a semi-structured uh, interview that asks questions around signs and symptoms of a brain injury that may have resulted from one or more episodes of intimate partner violence. Um, it, it's, I think of it more of, as a, a quantitative um, scientific tool rather than a diagnostic uh, tool that might be used, say, at a women's shelter. So it's really, I find it really helpful in the context of some of the questions we're asking because it it gives what I like to think of as a, a score of a, a brain injury load um, within the context of intimate partner violence. So it allows you to stratify the experiences of participants and really uh, compare them within themselves. Uh, um, so someone who scores really low on it um, has absolutely experienced intimate partner violence, but m maybe no or only a very few episodes that resulted in signs and symptoms of a brain injury, whereas someone who scores really high, it happened very frequently. It may have happened a couple of weeks ago and, and perhaps uh, one or more times they may have lost consciousness or had a period of post-traumatic amnesia. So it's a more serious exposure is the point. And so from a scientific perspective, we can take that score and relate it to some of our measures of, of brain function as a way to compare and contrast within a group of survivors. Because um, it, it, it allows you to mitigate the issue of, um, from a science, again, from a scientific uh, rigor perspective of uh, what's your comparison group? <laughs> Who do you, what are your controls, right? Um, there are no good controls for IPD survivors. Um, you know, it's the, because of the complexity of the experience, um, it's really hard to compare, say, someone who had a brain injury um, who may be matched in every other way in terms of age and um, uh, sex and education, for example. Um, but it was only one experience, and it didn't result in um, post-traumatic amnesia or, or some of the other psychopathological comorbidities. So then you don't know if the difference is due to the experience of the brain injury or these comorbidities that come along with it. So the brain injury severity assessment is, is a nice experimental tool that allows us to address these questions with uh, maybe a bit more um, scientific rigor than we might have otherwise. Um, and if I may, just from a clinical and functional standpoint, so a patient comes in the door, you're asking a thorough history, you're asking a lot of questions about previous head injuries, did they ever fully resolve, what were your lingering symptoms before, 
And then depending on the specialty, if the patient's seeing an occupational therapist, a physio, speech therapist, they're going to be doing those same assessments that they're doing for any type of head injury, but you want to be trauma-informed, right? So you might modify your goals based on the speed with which you would expect this type of patient population to progress through. But if you're still doing a vision assessment, you're still looking for objective findings, the, the vast majority of head injuries are not going to have findings on a CT. So their case isn't going to live or die by their imaging results, but it's going to be, you know, what does their posturography look like, a balance? Um, how do their eyes and their inner ears communicate with one another? What is their cognitive functioning on screening tools? Um, how are they performing in vision therapy? So if you are a person who's experienced intimate partner violence and you had this head injury, yes, you are more layered and there's some more complicating factors, but at the end of the day, the treatment is objective and, and we're going to be looking for these deficits and then we're going to be tackling them in a functional way to get you better so that you're able to move on with your life and move past that trauma. I think one of the things that, that Karen alluded to that I think is is really important and, and worth sort of circling back to is, is that question around the ethics and the risk um, and balancing that up against um, empowerment for women and, and the, the right to self-knowledge. Um, you know, one of the things that we struggle with in the research world at the moment is how do we how do we address this? Do we just, you know, do we, we could, any number of us could sit down and crank out an, a, a screening tool and hand it around. Um, but we've, you know, all of us have been been careful about that. And and as as Karen says, you know, we're looking for less about screening for identification and more about protocol for for support and and practice. And how can we, you know, one of the things that I hear from the front line right away is, well, I already have to ask 50 million questions of a woman who's walking in off the street because she's just been she's literally just been pulled out of a violent encounter with a partner. And you want me to ask more, and and my sort of immediate response is no, no, no. We don't need to ask more. We need you to be aware of these particular pieces of the puzzle. We need you to understand what it might be that's happening for this woman, and how. What is the information that is most likely to give you that kind of insight into the person sitting across from you? And once you have that, what can you do to change to to very subtly alter the services that you're delivering? in such a way that they now become accessible to the woman who's, who's, who's got this added layer of challenge on top of what is already an unthinkable situation. So I think it's, you know, this is something that, that um, I, I, I love Paul's description of, of the visa and how he's using it. I think that's really, for me as a, as a, as a researcher, that's really interesting. That's the, one of the first times I've heard how it's really effective. And, and so that really, I find that really interesting and, and really valuable. And I think to, to balance the science up against the care on the front line is really where we, what we're looking to do right now. And, and it's these sorts of conversations that are moving that forward really well. Thank you for the amazing insight on those guys. So just to make it a little bit more nuanced and complicated, I was wondering if anyone could touch on how age um, sexuality and ethnicity plays a factor in screening for IPV-related TBI. Well, I, I could say something about age. I suppose that um, it's kind of an un overlooked group in, in brain injury. Like, we have guidelines for children and adults. We don't have them for older adults. But, you know, we know that in the context 
of elder abuse. This doesn't come up a lot. And I've talked to a few leaders in elder abuse about this, and they say, yeah, it's not really on their radar. Um, and, um, and there are different uh, considerations, too, like in terms of, um, you know, seniors might be on different medications that, you know, anticoagulants that could lead to a bleed, for instance. And also there's ageism. Um, you know, people will have a brain injury and they'll think, oh, they're, you know, going senile. It's part of, you know, early Alzheimer's. And uh, so, and any period of immobility can be particularly harmful for an older adult, as well as, um, you know, any problem with balance and mobility could lead to another fall, for instance. So um, I think there needs to be awareness about the older adult population. Indigenous populations, you know, we've done, we researched a paper on this, you know, the victim uh, violence in persons uh, from indigenous populations is two to three times higher. Still, there's not a lot of awareness about brain injury. That's what we found. And at the same time, um, not a lot of resources in terms of health care. And, and the ones that are are not necessarily culturally sensitive. And a huge infrastructure challenges, um, such as um, lack of shelters, um, you know, lack of information, communication, technology. Um, so, uh, so in addition to that, and, and also not necessarily trust issues with um, police and, and healthcare providers, and and that it's just another layer of stigma associated with it as well. I don't know. Um, if uh, if I can, I just want to for any U.S. listeners. Um, I would like to implore you to be aware of what is happening in your local governments. Uh, in Utah this week, there's a proposed bill going to the floor, HB 21, which is looking to increase the difficulty to obtain an order of protection in the case of stalking um, in a state that's struggling, if you will, with uh, intimate partner violence. And so making sure, I don't know how it works in Canada because I'm an egocentric American, only aware of our own situation, uh, but... <laughs> It's very easy to write to your representatives. Um, every state has a, a website where you type in your address and it tells you who all of your elected officials are, whether or not you voted for them. Um, and so, and it's very simple to send an email. So um, if anyone is in Utah listening to us in a timely fashion, please send a message to your elected officials, but also please just be aware of what is happening at a local level because we wanna be moving in a more progressive um, situation where we're getting more help for women and, and victims of IPV versus less. Thank you for that great point, Lauren. I do think that for US listeners, that would be a great piece of information to look into. Um, one last area for discussion would be in comparison with sport concussion, ideally in a in a future date where the research is caught up maybe, or, or the educational campaigns have caught up with sport concussion for IPV-related TBI, where would the healthcare system be at for, say, a woman who was hurt in a low-income situation versus a high-income situation um, B, if that makes any sense? I can clarify if it doesn't. 
Um, I'll take a, a quick roll at what I think you're asking about. One okay. of the things that we know is that um, IPV happens across the board. It's not it's not in one racial group. It's not um, in one socioeconomic group. It's not in one education background. It, it everybody is at risk of exposure in that sense. Um, but the, those those layers of marginalization make it harder and harder for some women to to climb out and and to overcome and move beyond. Um, and I guess the first thing that comes to my mind in terms of healthcare and um, and and uh, socioeconomic status would have to do with access um, and options. You know, it, it it's what I would call in when I'm teaching. You know, it's what I would call privilege, right? Um, who's got? Do you need to go to a shelter, or do you have do you have options other than that? Have you got resources? Have you got family behind you? Do you have ties here in a community? Do you, and and while all of those may not sound like healthcare in the way that we think about it, they're all directly related to a survivor's health. And and they will all be part of the decision-making process in can she even go and see a doctor? So I think um, it, it isn't so much that our services, at least in Canada, it's not so much that our services are different. It has to do with the ability of a woman to even consider whether or not that's an option for her. Now, in the American context, you know, Lauren, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think it's probably even it's even more challenging, you know, in, in the system that, that you're working with, access to healthcare is even more significantly tied to income than than in our system, in a public health care system like ours. Yes, and then if you are leaving your situation, it depends on the state you live in as far as what your access is to your own finances, um, how you would stay on your health care. If you're getting divorced from your abuser, would you lose your health care and end up on Medicaid uh, versus having a little bit of an easier access to the system? So the U.S. in many ways is layered in intricacies that make things more challenging. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it really, you know, you could come from a high socioeconomic status family and live in a state where you don't have equal access to your bank accounts once you leave the home. Or if you are the one who leaves, you lose the establishment of residency and you lose rights to your home. I mean, there are, it's state dependent. It depends on the color of your state, red or blue. And it depends on the strength of the policies that they have and how much they protect one side versus the other. So. Um, Utah versus Connecticut would be a completely different situation, um, unfortunately. Yeah, Sophia, did you have a, a final no, question? I think that's, I think, that's, I think, that's I think that's we're uh, we've been talking for a while, for a while now, so it's one of the, oh, again. Had one more thing. Paul oh, had oh yes, he did. Yes, that's what I was going to just. I'm not going to not going to decide now. Thanks, Lauren. Laura and I are old friends from a, from a podcast that she hasn't been doing in a long time. But... Don't judge me. 2020, I live in America. 2020 has been rough, okay? Shut me a whole class. But, um, but actually, but now, now that I've just ragged on her, I will uh, let Paul and Karen and I guess Angela and Lynn and whoever else talk about uh, this move ahead webinar. Or a conference where would we call webinar? Is it what you want to call it that you were in the end of February? But I'll let Paul or Karen talk about that. 
Want me to? Go for okay. it. Okay. Uh, so we are um, delighted to be hosting a, a two-day online conference session that we're calling Moving Ahead, Putting Knowledge of Brain Injury and Intimate Partner Violence into Practice on February 24th and 25th. It is free to attend except for a minimal $10 administrative fee. And we have a range of incredible researchers and practitioners and experts uh, presenting at this conference on a whole bunch of the topics that we've talked about today in this podcast um, and having the opportunity to do you know, entire sessions on them. So both Lynn and Angela will be presenting at the conference and we're delighted that they've agreed to do that. We also have Dr. Eve Valera from Harvard Medical School who I think of as the pioneer in this work. She's really one of the first to start delving into this. Um, and we have someone I'm really excited about because I get to interview her. It's uh, Rachel Louise Snyder, who's an award-winning author and professor from the United States who wrote No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence is Killing Us. It is an absolutely seminal work on intimate partner violence. She does reference strangulation and brain injury as part of her book, and it's an incredible book, and she's an amazing advocate. So she's also one of our keynote speakers, and we have sessions on screening tools. We have sessions on the ethics of screening. We have a session on the abused and brain injured toolkit that Lynn and the Angela's team developed. We have one on gender differences that Angela will be speaking to. And then a few on some promising practices in rehabilitation and supports for women that are happening in both Canada and the United States. So people just have to go to our website at um, soarproject.ca and they can link from there directly to register for the conference. So we'd love to see as many of your listeners as possible signing up to learn more about this wonderful and important topic. Well, I would I would just encourage everybody to sign up for that. I don't know who can and and has interest. And I think everybody that listens to this podcast will definitely have some interest and hopefully be better informed about this really important important issue. And I would, I mean, when we used to talk for an hour or today but i mean there's so much more to say and of course well i think i think that's why the the uh the conference which goes more in depth in all these issues is so important the webinar sorry um but uh, i would certainly like to do something another podcast of this sort again if people are around people can do that sort of thing um and uh otherwise i just thank you all for uh for, for so much for informing everybody listen to this podcast about about this about this issue and and these multiple issues and these saying layered issues that are so important that affect so many people unfortunately but they do and uh yes and uh is there, is there anything else anybody like anyone else would like to add before we sign off for this for this podcast it looks like that the answer is in solid no or no, Sophia, uh, raise your hand. Figure yeah. head. Okay. I was just wondering if you guys could um, maybe list for some listeners if they're in British Columbia, Ontario, or Utah, where they can get help if they are maybe an IPV survivor. That's an important question. Good Google. Anybody in Canada can go on the uh, the website for Women's Shelters Canada and Violence and VAW.ca, and there's a link to their website that it locates every women's shelter in Canada on a large map. And there's also a link to that from the ABI toolkit, I believe as well. Yep, there is. Um, I'm sure there is a national 
number or website to call. I don't know what it is, but in Utah, you can go to www.uadvt.org. Um, and that helps with some free counseling associated with domestic violence, um, excuse me, intimate partner violence. And then um, each state should have a .gov website that would have access to different providers in your area. And if you're in Utah, you can always reach out to me um, through Phoenix Concussion, or if you just need help in general, you can reach out to me um, through Phoenix Concussion and shoot me a message. I would be happy to try to facilitate in some way. And uh, Lauren is an excellent one to talk to about anything in the issue, concussion or IV, or unnatural IV, but brain injury at least. And uh, definitely reach out to her. If you're, and I'd like to thank everyone else for, uh, for, for being on this podcast because aside from Lauren and Sophia, I have first time I've met any of you except for Aaron also. I don't know if I forgot to read you, Aaron, but. Uh, but you're my co-host, so it's not count. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you all so much for uh, for agreeing to be on this podcast. And as I said, I would love to send you email as well. But I would also like to proffer another podcast, hopefully, and uh, we'll talk about this some more. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye everyone. Concussion Talk Podcast is presented by HeadCheck Health. HeadCheck Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. To our organizations like the Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on HeadCheck Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadCheckHealth.com for more. Music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound, www.bensound.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.